It's Tuesday, October the 5th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow, and I'll be the moderator of today's show. That means I have the honor of introducing the stars of our show. Now, two of the Goodfellows you already know by now, the historian Neil Ferguson and the economist John Cochran, both are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows. Ordinarily, our, our good friend H.R. McMaster rounds out the trio of Goodfellows, but the good general is in Washington this week testifying on Afghanistan. In his place, we're joined by Tyler Goodspeed, the Hoover Institution Klein-Heinz Fellow and a former acting chair and vice chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. With a last name like Goodspeed, Tyler, it's just a matter of time before we bumped you up to Goodfellow. Thanks for coming on the show today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I got to so tell the story. We, we had a fight. We're going to talk about economics. And I said, I want an economist. And Neil said, I want a historian. I said, I want an economist. I'm an historian. So he settled on someone who is both an economist and a historian. Welcome, Tyler. You outrank us both. Well, glad you're, I'm glad you mentioned that, John, because I was about to uh, mention to Neil that ordinarily historians outweigh economists on this show two to one, but it looked like economists ruled in this one two to one, and Neil would find himself the minority, but apparently not. It looks like we're one, one, and one. It's it's Tyler's dark secret that he was once my student at Harvard, and uh, he leads a double life. Part of him is a historian, and part of him is an economist, and uh, it's actually quite unusual to be eminently qualified in both disciplines. Unusual to the point of, of it scarcely exists anymore, but his early work was very much a work of financial history, his uh, doctoral thesis, which looked at the great late 18th century Scottish financial crisis. Uh, but he then, he covers such a broad range of things that it never ceases to amaze me. And I'm just delighted to welcome him to, to Goodfellows because uh, He's just one of the most brilliant people I ever taught. And what, watching his career lead him from academia to the, the swamp, to the corridors of power, was, uh, was deeply impressive, especially af af as he achieved a great deal while he was in Washington. Okay, four items for the group's consideration this week. Item number one, congressional votes on infrastructure that were supposed to happen last week, but had been pushed back to later this month. For all the attention given to the dollar signs of the two bills, what do these two measures achieve in the way of economic growth? Item number two, Washington's game of chicken over the federal debt ceiling. Could the U.S. actually default on its debt two weeks from now, or is this usual 11th hour brinkmanship we're accustomed to in the nation's capital? Item number three, the supply, the supply chain crisis affecting the global economy. It was bad enough that Dr. Fauci suggested we may not be able to get together for Christmas. Now it looks like it's going to be very difficult to get presents under the tree this year. And then finally, item number four, for all you investors out there, cryptocurrency. There have been 18 bills introduced in Congress this year that directly impact crypto, blockchain technology, or central bank digital currencies. It's a sound oversight or a case of killing the goose that laid the golden coins. So Tyler is our guest this week. Why don't you kick off things? And let's talk about what's going on in Congress right now. Uh, for all the attention given to the dollars involved here and the moving goalposts of that game, it started out at $6 trillion. It moved down to $3.5 trillion. Joe Manchin then said, no, $1.5 trillion is more to my liking. Today, the West Virginia senator said maybe $2.2 trillion is uh, uh, I can deal with. Um, a simple question for you, Tyler. Is this good economics? So I think it's important to, to break it up into pieces. So we can maybe start with the infrastructure bill, which I can understand the argument that, look, right now, the real rate of interest on federal government debt is negative. Therefore, anything that yields a, a rate of return greater than zero is arguably a decent uh, investment to make. But the average rate of return on a dollar in federal public capital is 
So even $1 trillion in new spending is going to raise long-run potential output by about $50 billion in a $22 trillion economy. That's 0.2%. That's without taking into account any, any crowding out effects or local displacement effects, which if you take those into account, which Penn Wharton budget model does, you're looking at about a one-tenth of a percentage point boost to GDP. So, I mean, this, this isn't transformational stuff. And, and we shouldn't be surprised because we know this from history. Doug, uh, Bob Fogel won a Nobel Prize in economics by demonstrating that actually the total social savings from the railroads, which were a much more transformational investment uh, than, than what's being deliberated in the bipartisan infrastructure package, total social savings were about 2.8% of gross national product at the end of the 19th century for the U.S. Mm-hmm. When we look at the, the reconciliation package, Look, there's, there's stuff to which I do not on the face object to. I mean, for example, paid family leave. I think there's a growth argument there that if you provide paid family leave for particularly female uh, participants in the labor force who don't otherwise have access to paid family leave, then you increase the probability that they remain attached to the labor force uh, post-childbirth. Uh, that has paid, can pay dividends later on. So I can see a growth argument there, increasing female labor labor force participation, particularly female labor force participation. Mm -hmm. But the empirical evidence is kind of mixed on that. Some actually find some negative effects. So to me, that indicates that any likely growth effect is probably pretty modest. Child tax credit is a complicated one because during the phase out, it raises implicit marginal tax rates, which reduces incentives to work. During the phase-in range, it can actually decrease implicit marginal tax rates because it's offsetting the phase-out or partially offsetting the phase-out of the earned income tax credit. But that that effect is negated when you make it fully refundable, which what the reconciliation package does, it gets more complicated because then if you increase the threshold for the phase-out, that can attenuate some of that. Um, by and large, it's probably going to be a, a wash on, on, on the, the growth front, and it's expensive. I mean, we doubled the child tax credit in the 2017 tax law and increased eligibility for it, and that cost almost $600 billion over, over 10 years, without, probably without much of a positive growth impact. Um, and we could go through the, the list with more things, but um, you know, universal pre-K, in theory, good idea. A dollar. When you think about where in a life cycle does a dollar invested in human capital yield the highest return, it's earlier rather than later. But there isn't much evidence that this can be done effectively at scale. I mean, the Perry Pre, the famous Perry Preschool project, was a very special project. I, I think a hundred participants. It had a unique curriculum, a unique pedagogy. The family was involved. I'm not sure that can that can be effectively scalable. And if you're if you're taking children from households and putting them in poorly designed public programs, there's a good chance that you can be impeding the formation of some of those non-cognitive abilities that, that the Perry Preschool Project was so effective at, at, at augmenting. So that's that's what's supposed to be on the growth side and the spending package. And then on the the, the revenue side, look, raising the corporate income tax rate to 26.5%. That alone is probably going to shave 0.6 to 0.9 percentage points off potential GDP. 
-hmm. cap gains tax rate doesn't have a huge impact on the cost of capital, but you're probably talking about a, a tenth or a couple tenths of a percentage point there, depending on, on whether you couple that with elimination of step up in basis. And the individual income tax rate going up is another tenth uh, to, to, to a couple tenths. And you add it all up and, you know, tenths of a percent here, tenths of a percent there perpetually. And that's a pretty big deal. And I think that's why, you know, Tax Foundation had just the, the, the tax side reducing potential output by 1%. And Penn Wharton budget model had uh, 4 to 5%, including the spending stuff. Okay, let's get John in on this. John, you just did a podcast, the Grumpy Economist podcast on this. Uh, your thoughts on what's going on? Yeah, I'll just advertise that. I, I spent 45 minutes with Casey Mulligan on what was in this reconciliation bill uh, and all the disincentives. But let me just touch on a couple of these issues. Now, now you see why Tyler's so effective. He's calm. He's even-handed. He's fact-based. He's, he's thinking. Now, I'll, I'll, I'm going to put it in the truth. It doesn't belong truth. on this show. It doesn't belong on this show because we have to we have to spout <laughs> louder than that. Um, infrastructure. Uh, the problem with infrastructure in the United States is not lack of funding. It's that it's impossible to build anything. Uh, look at the California high-speed train, uh, for example. Look at the, what was it, $4 billion per mile to build a subway in New York City. I mean, they actually got that one built. Uh, but uh, the cost disease is the problem with infrastructure in the United States. An infrastructure bill that came along with reforming some of that, reforming endless environmental suits, quote, environmental suits, because they don't help the environment, ending Davis-Bacon uh, and, and other reforms that we could actually get something done. It's in, in Palo Alto, it's impossible to put solar panels on your roof because of the regulatory barriers. I mean, that's the problem with infrastructure in the United States. Most of the stuff also is not, you think roads and bridges, but that's not where most of the money is going to go. The larger, you, you uh, pose this bill as a growth bill. And I think that's, um, uh, Tyler was very nice to answer the question, but that's not the point of any of this. None of this does anything to enhance growth. Nobody actually wants growth. That's part of the problem. Growth comes from uh, pr uh, more productivity, innovation, new companies displacing old companies, all that sort of stuff. Uh, this isn't about growth. It's, it's about a, uh, the, the reconciliation bill in particular is about an enormous change in the way we work, uh, pay taxes, and, uh, and, and the structure of, of the economy. For example, the childcare uh, business, uh, so you get money for childcare, except it is not tied, there's a phase out, which disincentivizes you to work, and it's not tied to work at all. Uh, and and um, the pre-K, for example, uh, I, I think of it as, Let's look at the wonders that unionized public schools have done for especially minority and poor kids in this country. What a wonderful, why don't we extend their tender mercies to every four-year-old in the country? At the same time, the reconciliation bill has strong pressures to unionize these industries along with elder care. So, uh, you know, the wonders of a, a unionized uh, public supported industry plus uh, subsidies that aren't tied to work. Um, you know, the idea that this is going to free women to work. And, and let's ask, what is it going to do to families? These are just, the, we are repeating the disincentives that were such a disaster of the social programs of the uh, 1970s. But it's not about work. Uh, you know, unionization is about trying to, trying to force money to go from one person to another. Higher marginal tax rates, it's about soaking the rich. Uh, it's not about incentivizing work, um, productivity enhancements, investments, and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's just not 
where it's going. And I think we should evaluate it on, um, is it going, you know, I'd be all for three and a half, if we could spend three and a half billion dollars, trillion dollars, if for that we could heal the climate, bring end poverty, uh, give opportunity to all children in the US and, and, and so forth, I'd, I'd be all for it, double the money. Uh, the question of this is, are these programs designed to do anything of the sort? And they look to me just, uh, you know, the same disincentives, the same uh, problems of, of programs that have, have led to money down rat holes before and, and less growth. So that's, that's what I see coming out of them. Neil? Well, maybe I can put a question to Tyler as, as he's the one with the experience of, of government. What, what strikes me here is that if one takes a step back, the, the federal debt is close to its end World War II level in relation to gross domestic product. And the Congressional Budget Office says that on present uh, trends, I don't know if they've updated it lately, it's gonna be 200% of, of GDP uh, by about 2030. Meanwhile, in the land of monetary policy, the talk is all of, of tapering and maybe even rate hikes at some future date. And in the land of the economists, the debate is about inflation. Is it transitory or is it going to continue? Either way, it's here. So how do you think about, as it were, these, these bigger fiscal dynamics? It doesn't seem like the perfect time to be doing a huge amount of additional fiscal policy, whatever its uh, benefits or costs in terms of, of output. I mean, if even Larry Summers thinks there's a kind of fiscal overkill story here, I don't know what the rest of us are supposed, are supposed to think, but is there a kind of bigger problem coming faster down the pike between a very high stock of debt, shifting inflation expectations, and the likelihood that at some point it's all over with the secular stagnation story and we're actually dealing with real, real interest rates turning positive on all this debt? So first, first jumping back to something that, that John said, one thing that I think is a, a, a deep irony about how this bill is being sold is that it is being sold as sort of a, a European style provision of, of social transfers uh, funded by taxation of the rich. But that, that's not how Europe finances it. Okay. Europe finances it by taxing labor very high uh, and those rates kick in very low. I mean, in most of Western Europe, you're earning 1.3, 1.4 times the average wage and you are paying the top marginal rate. And on top of that, you're paying a VAT. And one thing that really strikes me about this reconciliation package on the revenue side is that they do a bunch of things ostensibly to soak the rich. But in reality, on cap gains, I, I think that they would probably people will probably be paying less in capital gains tax uh, as it is currently structured, because they are raising the rate above the revenue maximizing rate. And so people will just, but they're not eliminating step up in basis. So people will just defer realizing capital gains and kick more of those capital gains into inheritance, uh, where it will just be stepped up in basis and not be subject to, to, to capital gains. So it's both economically inefficient, you get, get less capital reallocation, and it fails on the equity front. You get more intergenerational wealth inequality. Um, on Neil's question, yeah. So I try to think about, and this is actually part of the reason why I go to the, the, the growth question. Because when I look back on history, we, we've been in this situation before, although we're soon going to vastly surpass where we were previously. But we, we've been in this situation in, in 1945. 
Britain was in this situation in 1815, in 1918, in 1945. And it's really interesting to look at how those massive public debt to GDP ratios came down. Uh, it, after 1815, Britain brought it down by just grinding out primary budget surpluses. But and they also grew. They, they had the Industrial Revolution, which, which helped a lot. <laughs> it, it helped a lot, but you and, and, and you've obviously written a lot about this, about R, R, R minus G. Uh, R minus G was, was not, you know, the, the rate of interest that they were paying on their debt and the rate of growth of the economy didn't give them much, much wiggle room. So a lot, that was very much and surpluses. By, by surpluses. They tried to replicate that after 1918, but when you have a debt to GDP ratio greater than 100%, you can run primary balance surpluses till the, the, the cows come home. And it's, it's hard to grind it out if, if you're paying very high real interest rates, which Britain was when they went back on gold at the pre-war parity. So their debt to GDP ratio basically went nowhere uh, between 1918 uh, and, and the 1930s. Uh, then after 1945, the formula for both the UK and the US was some primary budget surpluses, a bit of financial repression, which I wouldn't recommend, uh, a bit of surprise inflation, and some growth tailwinds, in particular, uh, rising uh, population, some unexplained total factor productivity growth. I mean, it's a residual in our growth accounting, and it was very strong in the aftermath of 1945. Uh, and those those tailwinds, I just don't see present today. Um, so I mean, I would be focused on getting 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 G up, but um, because otherwise you're not looking at a particularly palatable menu of of, of options. Yes, we, we all agree. agree. And 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 this this rarely happens. Yes. But we should savor the moment of <laughs> of almost unprecedented consensus on Goodfellas. But okay, let me. Let me now throw it to John. I'll be the kind of dumb historian here with the economists educating him. So if we don't have the growth exit, if there isn't some kind of free lunch lurking out there that is going to give us a, a spurt in productivity growth, how do, how do you as an economist think about the dynamics? Because you can sort of inflate it away in theory but in practice, when you actually try and do that, it doesn't work because the markets adjust to the inflation risk unless you really do completely rig rates. And a lot of stuff is index linked. And so there isn't actually even an easy inflationary exit of the sort that brought the UK's debt down pretty swiftly in the 60s and 70s. So what's the kind of end game? We've got this large burden of debt. Currently, negative rates, but the prospect that that won't last terribly long. Deficits, as far as the eye can see. Forget primary surplus. I don't know how you could even get to primary surpluses in our present situation. So how does this end? Is it kind of, do we all turn into Japan with a very large debt stock, very low growth? And, you know, you just kind of carry on channeling the money from the, the, the few young people in, in work to the, the elderly who are retired? How does, how does the political economy of, of, of America with this debt burden look to you, John? Well, before it, uh, political economy has to, has to reflect budget constraints, just like the rest of us. <laughs> um, you are exactly right. So um, inflating away isn't going to work because our problem is not so much our current debt. 
our problem is the fact that Social Security and Medicare are about to kick in. We, we have nothing good on the horizon. 1945, the war was over and we could start running primary surpluses. We had a much more deregulated economy, much easier to have that productivity growth. Now we're in a, a sclerotic economy, back, back to all the rules that stop you from, from getting anything done. Uh, Japan actually would be the good outcome. Uh, how long can this you know, go on with huge amounts of debt and very markets willing to lend to you at very low interest rates? Uh, you know, the fear is what happens when Japan ends. I'm, I'm, uh, the mechanics of it scare me because it's not clear the Fed has the capacity to stop inflation anymore. Uh, let's imagine our, our, the Fed, by the way, right now, what it's saying sounds a lot like about 1972. Oh, it's all transitory. Oh, we're going to run down the Phillips curve and help inequality and so forth. Uh, we're going to wait to see the eyes of inflation. That we're, we're, that, that's always what they said. But suppose they have to raise interest rates. Uh, back in 1980, debt to GDP was 25%. Uh, now it's 100%. So if they try to raise interest rates, they're going to explode interest costs on the debt. And we'll see what Congress says about that when uh, a trillion dollar uh, bill comes due for interest costs on the debt. Uh, so where does it end? Well, this is fairly classic. Uh, <laughs> you either got to uh, somehow get it out of taxpayers, you got to cut the spending, uh, or you got to default on the debt, but then defaulting on the debt doesn't really help you because you, you need to, you, you still got this uh, social security stuff. So it's not that hard. We need to reform our, our entitlements to being something we can afford. We need to reform our tax system so that it raises revenue without doing incredible amounts of uh, economic damage. And we need to reform uh, the economic structure that allows us to go back to growth um, you know, of the supply side productivity enhancing sort. Um, that's the trio of, of things that you got to do. Otherwise, you end up with a real calamity on your hands. Mm -hmm. Good point. Or is that how you see the uh, this thing playing out? I, I again love that that economic historical perspective on how this ends. Country, my, my understanding. I didn't answer your question. I mean, you know, countries run into problems. So what happens when you know Brazil runs into a debt crisis? Then it cuts its social security. I don't know what the numbers are, but you know, you cut your benefits catastrophically right now because you just don't have the money. Well, well, that's yeah, the kind of outcome that could happen. The sample size of countries that end up with excess debt is pretty large. And our friend Ken Rogoff uh, did his best to kind of make sense of it all with Carmen Reinhardt, and this time is different. The cases you mentioned, Tyler, are the good news cases where debt was brought under control by a combination of, of growth, primary surpluses, and uh, some inflation. Uh, but I mean, that, those are the outliers. In most cases, countries that end up with debts and excessive 100% of GDP end up with either some kind of very painful contractionary process or or with inflation that spirals out of control. So I'm kind of, I'm interested to know where you think the US is located in this broader sample size of all the countries that ever got into debt difficulties. So here I'm informed by a couple of quotes Two of them attribute uh, three quotes actually. Two of them attributable to the late great Rudy Dornbush, uh, MIT economist, uh, and the third is is I'm I'm not sure to whom it is attributable, but the the, the Rudy Dornbush quotes are when economic crises happen, they take take longer to happen than you thought they could, uh, and when they happen, they happen faster than you thought they would. Uh, and also 
international bond markets are always willing to lend the United States just enough rope to hang itself. Uh, and the third quote, unattributable, is number one rule of Washington, D.C. is Congress never acts until they absolutely have to, and sometimes not even then. Mm-hmm. If I could add, the, the historical record on these, we, we tell stories about, oh, crowding out and interest rates slowly go up and you have room. These ha- What Tyler just said is exactly right. Historically, I hope I can be my fake historian for a minute. Uh, crises always happen unpredictably. That's in their nature um, because I'll lend as long as I think you're, you're lending. Uh, and, and so there's, it's sort of like earthquakes out there and, and like, you know, like Japan, it can go on a long time until all of a sudden it stops. I do think there's a puzzle here. Who in the world is lending money to the U.S. Treasury for 30 years at 2%? I just, I just looked it up. Uh, bond markets seem awfully willing to do it. Well, they always have in the past. Bond markets never saw inflation coming in the 70s. They never saw inflation going away in the 1980s. Uh, but it is, you know, we, we are being kept afloat by uh, very cheap money. And it, it's a little bit of a puzzle to me who is who is uh, the uh, providing more and more money to the U.S. Now, some of the latest trends, maybe you're up on this more than I am, Tyler. Uh, uh, who is buying treasuries is changing a lot. Foreigners aren't anymore. The Federal Reserve is buying most of them. And it'll be interesting to see uh, perhaps the beginnings of the shaking of the earth are underneath us now. Right. So I have, I have two quick thoughts there. One is that, yes, to a certain extent, we would be lucky to be Japan because Japan is this sort of hermetically sealed bubble where after, after 1989, uh, given the demographic shifts, Japanese households were engaging in massive saving for anticipated longer retirement lives as life expectancy went up. And then also Japanese corporations just weren't investing. So there was a lot of corporate savings. So there was this sort of closed system where households and corporations would lend to the government government who would then you know build airports and bridges and and it was this cl- closed loop we don't have that that closed loop and on the who is buying this front i think and this is something neil and i have talked about before it's very interesting to go back over the past 60 years and look at who is relatively better at predicting inflation and when. It turns out professional forecasters, I mean, we don't have tips markets before the the late 90s. So, you know, we have to go on professional forecasters, street forecasters. Over a multi-decade period, they are better at forecasting inflation. But that is entirely driven by periods of moderation. When it comes to regime shifts, the late 1960s, early 1970s, and then the disinflationary shift in the 1980s, consumers were consistently better at forecasting inflation. So, so the superior performance of professional forecasters over the past six decades has been entirely driven by periods of moderation. It was the period of the late 1960s, early 1970s, and then the disinflationary period of the, the 1980s, where consumers outperformed professional forecasters in terms of anticipating uh, inflation and having the smallest errors. But no one is very good at forecasting inflation. And there's a reason. Because if you knew that prices were going to go up next year, you'd raise your prices today. And if you a consumer knew prices were going up next year, you'd go out and buy it today and you'd drive the prices up today. So there's 
There's an inherent unpredictability of inflation, like there's an inherent unpredictability of stock prices, like there's an inherent unpredictability of financial crises and debt crises. So, so relying, the Fed does this all the time, relying on, oh, our forecasts say it's not a problem is a horrendous mistake. As we just saw, they completely blew the forecast in the last year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Teller, I would like to do a little forecasting for us. And I would like you to forecast how the debt ceiling plays out between now and October the 18th. And I'd also like to get all three fellows' thoughts on the idea of the trillion dollar platinum coin. I know John actually has an alternative here. This quote from Paul Krugman, quote, go ahead, Democrats, and do whatever it takes to get through this. Democrat in the defense of sanity and in an important sense, democracy is no vice. Neil, by the way, if we had a trillion dollar coin, whose face would you put on it? Well, both of these ideas are silly. The debt ceiling is silly and the coin is silly. And it's a sign of the fundamental silliness of Paul Krugman that he doesn't say that. Okay, Tyler. So it's this is a, a tough one because both sides are just so dug in. And I, I think the, the Democrats do have the, the, the fallback of a, a new standalone reconciliation package or revising the existing reconciliation package. Mm-hmm. It would take time. There would be voteramas, but they could get it done, provided they act probably starting end of this week. And Republicans know they have that fallback. Therefore, they're going to be betting, OK, if, if we can make it to the end of this week, they're going to have to blink. Uh, but. Democrats also know that if they don't act by the end of this week, Republicans are going to be in a, in a bind. So I, I, I don't know how this ends. I, I, I think history would suggest uh, we have some deal makers on the Republican side who, who will do a deal. But also when you control both houses of, of Congress and, and the White House, there's a good chance uh, you don't want to take the risk uh, of, 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 a, of, of getting to X date. John? Well, so it is true that uh, from an economic and accounting point of view, the debt ceiling is kind of silly. Uh, but I have been convinced by uh, people who understand political economy that the debt ceiling is useful because it forces uh, some concessions to be made. Um, you know, some deals are made. Are we, we are supposed to have a budget process in the U.S. that is completely dysfunctional, and the debt ceiling does force a moment of, well, um, how are we going to spend things a little more uh, usefully, you know, a household that had a debt ceiling uh, and, and has kind of warring, uh, warring um, spouses about how we're going to spend things is, is forced to sit down and, and make some sense of it. Um, the, the trillion dollar coin is an accounting gimmick. Yes, it, 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 it's a part of a deeper. So I had this clever idea. Why don't you instead issue very high coupon debt, which also wouldn't count. The accounting behind how much federal debt we have is, is very uh, shoddy. And in fact, the coin is a liability of the federal government every bit as much as a bond is a liability of federal government. It's just not counted in the accounting. We don't, we don't account for coupons. We only account for principles. So these are kind of clever things. And I, I salute uh, Janet Yellen for selling and saying, I'm not doing clever things here. Um, let me point out, uh, everybody just assumes that when you hit the debt ceiling, you have to default. That is not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, default is always a choice. The U.S. government could simply spend less. The Treasury has a choice, send a check to grandma or send a check to bondholders. Uh, it may choose to send a check to grandma and to default on the debt, but that will be entirely a choice. The spending cuts required would be draconian because the amount of deficits are, are enormous. Uh, but I, I just want to push back on the, on the notion that is common out there that automatically hitting the debt ceiling must mean a default. No, that is a choice, just like everything else. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, gentlemen, switch over to supply chain now. Um, the question of if you're going to be able to, if you order goods now for Christmas, 
will they arrive by Christmas or not? Um, you've probably seen the video of the uh, ships. John has talked about this on previous shows. The ships uh, bottled up in San Francisco and Los Angeles, can't get to port, unload their containers. Um, are we to blame for this? We all who go online and shop to no end. Is this our problem or who's at fault here? Well, I, I think it's a, a confluence of factors. It, it's And these things are so finely tuned for just-in-time delivery that you then get the, the drawdowns of inventory in 2020 that then right. need to be restocked. You get a massive increase in, in personal aggregate personal income in 2020 and 2021 uh, that can't be deployed uh, on services. So a lot of that goes to goods, uh, substitutes away from services toward goods. And I, I, I think it's, and, and then on, on top of that, you have the supply side disruptions. I mean, you have single meat factories that are, that are taken offline because of outbreaks. You have single Chinese ports that are taken offline because of outbreaks. And that disrupts the whole interconnected web and, and it has cascading downstream, upstream and downstream effects. And, and once you get the backlog built up, I mean, it's rather like we've all seen how quickly a, a traffic jam can develop. I mean, and you could do the, you could probably do a, you know, partial differential equation model of it. Uh, but these things can explode very quickly and then do not resolve uh, easily overnight. Mm-hmm. Neil? The way I think about it is that this is the, the problem of a networked world when the network is is optimized in the way that Tyler des- described. Obviously the pandemic has been a, a huge shock through the global economy uh, and, and lockdowns uh, exacerbated what would have happened anyway. And it'll take time uh, for the global economy to, to re-equilibrate with these, as Tyler says, relatively small perturbations causing uh, network outages, uh, because it's a very complex system. In fact, the world economy is a perfect illustration of what of what people mean when they talk about complex systems, relatively small perturbations, that one port that was closed for a handful of COVID cases, can then have these global uh, ramifications. To me, one of the most interesting features of the story, though, is that is, and this is a, another question from my economist friends, is the extraordinary persistence of the US current account deficit. Uh, one of the more uh, uh, ignored uh, stories of the Trump administration was, was actually the current account deficit's stubborn persistence, which certainly wasn't what the president wanted to see. And I, I remember being struck during the pandemic by just the sheer number of packages that were being delivered to the United States of products made in China, as everybody decided at once that they needed a home gymnasium or or a home cinema or whatever it was. I mean, it was actually a huge uh, increase in in demand for precisely the kind of goods that China specializes in exporting. And at the same time, we drastically reduced our demand for non-tradable services inside the United States. So I wanted to Throw this to Tyler. I mean, one of President Trump's objectives with tariffs was to try and do something about uh, trade imbalances, and it ended in almost total failure. John's a great free trader, so am I, and I guess we always expected it to end in tears. But in some ways, it ended, you know, even even more spectacularly than than I'd, I'd foreseen because of the way in which the pandemic struck the US economy. How did you think about those issues when you were in the government as somebody who I don't think of as a 
big believer in tariffs. And tell me a little bit about how somebody navigates uh, the kind of political compromises that are nearly always necessary if you do take a government job. There's a lot in there. Uh, and, and certainly, I, sh I should say, I mean, if, if one's objective was to lower the bilateral trade deficit between the United States and the People's Republic of China, that, that objective was met. If that was your objective, that objective was met. Um, in terms of how I think about navigating policy decisions, uh, let's take, for example, the Section 232 steel and aluminum tariffs. That ultimately was made on national security grounds. So if national, and I'm not a national security expert. So if a national security expert comes to me and says the availability of an abundance of cheap, relatively cheap imported steel and aluminum is, is a threat to national security because it undermines the productive capacity of domestic steel and aluminum production. I take that as given. And then I ask myself, okay, if that is the determination, what are the available policy tools? You can do quotas, you can do subsidies, you can do tariffs. And a, a lot of economic theory would suggest that of those three options, tariffs are, are, are probably going to be the, 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 the tool of choice. Um, when it comes to China generally, I think it's, it's important to bear in mind that at the end of the day, China is a non-market economy and it is a $15 trillion non-market economy. And there's, there's one thing that we know about non-market economies is that they do not allocate resources and factors of production efficiently. When you are that big and that globally integrated, you are going to affect the global allocation of capital, uh, capital and labor and other resources. Uh, and potentially do so in, in very inefficient ways. So that this isn't quite the case of, you know, a $500 trillion or $700, trillion, uh, $500 billion, $700 billion economy, say Vietnam engaging in a lot of non-market activities where, okay, I mean, at the margin, they're, they're subsidizing U.S. steel users and U.S. consumers. When you're $15 trillion, you are, you are impacting the global distribution of savings and investment, the global allocation of factors of production. And I, I think that we, we saw some of the effect of that with the global scarcity of safe assets. And I, I, John, John, I welcome John's, John to disagree. Um, but that, I think, is an example of where a deeply integrated non-market economy of that size uh, is, is going to have pretty profound in, uh, a pretty profound impact on on the global allocation. I'm going to disagree. You know, so what if they want to give us subsidized steel? We send them flowers and chocolates and a thank you. I'll note, uh, note the Biden kept it, and there's just no national security argument that steel imported from China is is a threat to our national security. But let's get off uh, the usual tariff fight. I want to add a couple of comments on the supply chain business. Um, really, supply chain is just supply. Uh, it's a chain when different companies are involved, but if it were all one company, then it would just be supply. And the fact is the supply end of our economy is not able to produce what the demand wants. And, and I think the fact that the government has uh, printed up about $6 trillion of money and sent it to citizens to order stuff has a lot to do with it. And it's kind of funny, you know, Powell has, has been very sensible on many things, but he sort of said, oh, this is a supply problem. It's not about us. No, 
exactly the Federal Reserve's job is to say, well, here's how much the supply can do, so we'll get the demand up to it, but not more than it. And this just looks like a classic case of demand is more than it's not just supply chains. Every business in the country is having trouble hiring workers. There's a tremendous labor shortage right now. That's just good old fashioned. There's more people wanting to buy stuff than there's stuff that the economy can produce, which is in some sense from an economist point of view, I hope great news. The COVID recession was unlike any other. This was not a demand induced recession. This was, you know, the economy can't produce if everyone's staying home because of COVID. And now we are clearly in a supply limited uh, situation. And that a lot of that supply is because of all the sand in the gears of various things like tariffs um, and, and many other much more important, you know, we're paying people to stay home. Well, no wonder the supply side of the economy isn't there. So I hope that this experience and the, the fact it's going to continue will we'll focus our economic discussion, not on this endless demand, demand, demand that we've been at since Keynes wrote his general theory, uh, but on, on, the, on the limits of how much the economy can produce and how much sand in the gears there is to that process, not just networks and technicalities, but, but government sand in the gears, and that, that policy should be about increasing supply. And one last note, the, the other thing that's going on, of course, right now is the energy uh, stuff going on in Europe. Uh, where energy prices are, are increasing. Uh, the UK is discovering one of the problems of, not of Brexit, but of its response to Brexit, which was not to allow Polish truck drivers to come to the UK. Well, now there's no one around to bring oil to the uh, gas pumps and they're having gas pump lines. Uh, the US has been on, a, on a, a limiting supply of fossil fuels as many other countries have. Europe's been limiting supply of fossil fuels. What happens when you limit the supply of fossil fuels? The prices go up, which is just, Delicious irony given, so there's this whole business in finance now about we have to regulate against stranded assets because the decarbonization is going to lower the price of gas, supply and demand. What happens when you restrict the supply of fossil fuels? Guys, prices go up, they don't go down. Uh, so refocusing attention on, on these supply questions may be the one a nice thing that comes out of, of the current uh, quite chaotic moment. John, you mentioned Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Fed, has said that the Fed has, quote, no intention, in his words, of banning cryptocurrencies, uh, yet we do have cryptocurrency tax proposals before Congress. You've blogged about this, John Neal. You've written columns about this as well. Let's talk about what congressional intervention would do to this market, and also, I mean, especially interested in this from you, Neil, just what the long-term outlook is of Bitcoin. John, why don't you go first? Well, before we get into the crypto versus other fights, uh, so I think that there is a central tension here. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we are going to go to, we need to go to some form of electronic payments, whether that be cryptocurrency, a central bank digital currency, or, or my favorite um, electronic transactions uh, that are backed by uh, government debt of, or backed by something of some sort. Uh, there's, there's economic questions, which maybe we'll get back to whether uh, Bitcoin can establish a new standard of value, something sort of, but, but the issue in front of us right now is that um, a, a cornerstone of freedom is freedom to transact. Uh, I can buy and you can sell and the federal government doesn't have anything to do with it. Uh, in China, you don't have that freedom. The government watches everything you buy and sell electronically. Uh, now, uh, cash has this wonderful anonymity to it, uh, which is the cornerstone of your economic freedom and your political freedom. Um, right now, uh, Janet Yellen uh, did announce that the Treasury wants to watch every single transaction that goes through a bank account for monitoring taxes, which would be nice, but just think of the damage to your freedom if they can monitor every single transaction. Uh, every 
Undocumented immigrant in the country can be kicked out of work instantly when the government monitors every transaction. This is the central problem. If we have an electronic means of electronic currency of some sort, sort uh, that can be monitored. So how do we balance? Now, you don't want total, once you make it cheap to transact, cash is expensive to transact, especially big stuff. Once you make it cheap, people who want to cheat on their taxes, ransomware, um, all sorts of bad actors, North Korea, Iran, and so forth, can also uh, uh, do bad stuff cheaply. Uh, and you want some control for that. But if the government controls and watches every single trans and leaks every single transaction we make, we've just lost all sorts of liberties. That is the hard question, which I think we must answer. Optimistically, I think the only, we will take a long time to get there after we try everything else. The only way I can see it works is that there is a, something like a central bank digital currency, some underlying thing, not offered though by the central bank, that you you operate with a payment provider uh, that then is, that what you offer is backed by the government in a very safe way, but that the uh, the details of the transaction are held in something private. The government needs a subpoena to go and, and look and see what you're doing. Uh, it's going to be an imperfect trade-off, but efficiency of transactions versus some sort of anonymity, enough to keep your freedom, but not enough so that people actually do pay taxes and, and we're not overrun by ransomware pirates and, and so forth. That's, that's the question. Neil, your thoughts? Well, I've been through a series of, of thought evolutions on this subject. I think it was about seven years ago that one of my sons, who was then a teenager, tried to persuade me that Bitcoin was a thing, and I scoffed. Then he turned out to be very right as the price soared from $300, which I think was what it was when he first drew it to my attention. And uh, I spent much of 2017, 2018 rethinking my view and came to the conclusion that Bitcoin should be thought of as an option on digital gold. That is to say, something that could perform a gold-like function if uh, the internet of money works. And that Ethereum offered the possibility of an entire system uh, of smart contracts that went far beyond uh, simple payments. So I became a believer, and, and I've been arguing since then, that the United States should favor the development of decentralized finance and resist uh, the adoption of a Chinese-style central bank digital currency for the reasons that John just gave. Now, Washington is full of people who think somewhat uh, in an old-fashioned way that uh, Bitcoin is still primarily used for nefarious purposes, which is completely untrue. I mean, cash is used for nefarious purposes, and it's much better for nefarious purposes than, than Bitcoin. Part of what we have to do uh, is to educate uh, people in Washington, whether it's at the SEC or the, or the Fed or the Treasury, to realize that there's a huge opportunity here. The internet is evolving its own system of money, of payments. It did not make sense to be typing in your credit card number on website after website after website. I mean, welcome to the world of fraud if that was how we were paying for things. Right. And it's natural that this rapidly growing internet should evolve its own financial system. And we're building it in the United States. We're building a whole system of decentralized finance, which has enormous potential. All we have to figure out are, if you like, the on and off ramps from that virtual world to the real world where we have to pay our taxes 
in fiat dollars. And I think that that is not an insuperable technical challenge, nor is it an insuperable technical challenge to make sure that these things are not used for criminal activities, but that private law-abiding citizens can spend their hard-earned money uh, on whatever they like without the government automatically having a right to know. So that's how I think about this. I'm in favor of crypto. I'm skeptical about central bank digital currency. And my hackles rise when a whole gang of bankers uh, and economists and regulators turn around and say, it's all got to be banned. We should only have central bank digital currency, which is the current line of the Bank for International Settlements and Martin Wolf and the Financial Times. And no doubt Paul Krugman, who has been wrong about this ever since the thing was first heard of. Tyler? So without getting into the debate of what constitutes a bubble, is this or that digital uh, asset or cryptocurrency a bubble, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of the recent work of, of Bill Janeway on bubbles. And he makes the argument, and, and I think there's merit to this, that, that bubbles sometimes get a bad rap because Oftentimes, the object of the speculation is something perceived to be pretty useless, whether it's, it's tulips or you know, second homes in the, in the desert. But sometimes the object of the speculation, or the, the, the sector of speculation, uh, is a potentially transformative innovation or a transformative sector. And the focus of that speculation of capital allows the achievement of sufficient scale for that transformative technology to achieve liftoff. Railroads, internet economy. And here, I think there's tremendous demand and and economic need. I mean, demand reflects economic need, or at least wants, um, for fast and reliable payments that don't operate on the slow and expensive rails of ACH, of SWIFT. And I think just when I think back to past periods of of technological flourishing in finance, I think of Scottish banking, the first thing the incumbents did was to try to shut it down. But the problem is by the time would-be regulators, by the time regulators realize, uh, oh gosh, you know, we have have to crack down on this, it's usually already too late because you've achieved a fair amount of scale. I mean, certainly now if you have a capital gain, you're going to have to get a, a, a 1099 or otherwise report it on your 1040. If it's offshore, you're going to be, you know, have to do an FR 114 form every year. You know, if it's over a hundred thousand, you're probably going to have to file a FinCEN, you know, 8938 form, all this stuff. Um, but I, I think where I see this heading is, um, you know, an alternative payment systems, probably with, with, with various stable coins being the likely vehicles that are alternatives to, to ACH, which is why the, the financial institutions that constitute the Federal Reserve have been fighting this tooth and nail because they make $15 billion a year on overdraft and a little bit of, of additional money on float. Well, then, if I could add, uh, I'm not. I don't think that coins are really going to be the way to do it because they're computationally very, uh, very expensive. It, it's Bitcoin wasn't the, the whole question of is the answer to what question, and the question of how do you make cheap transactions turns out not to be it. But that's not uh, important. I, I, the vision we all have is a vision where there is accessible to all of us 
very fast, very cheap, secure electronic payments. Uh, and exact and and what we can do more on exactly the technology behind that. Uh, but you're exactly right to point politically who is against allowing uh, that to us. And the credit card companies and banks who take two to four percent off the top scandalously of every such transaction. Uh, banks uh, and the Federal Reserve, which is really in there to defend the banks. Banks love having all of our deposits. And so the Federal Reserve has been on a war against narrow banks and other payment processors who would offer, you know, give us a way to have the services of payments without depositing a lot of money in banks. Now, I, I think it would be a wonderful world if banks were financed by issuing equity rather than deposits and short-term debt to get rid of financial crises. Um, so there's a, there's a beautiful confluence of needs there, but there's a confluence of interests in the current system uh, that is really going to push hard to, to stop that from, from emerging. Okay, we have just a couple minutes left on the show, gentlemen. So let me give you a quick exit question, like all three of you to answer. Each year the president goes before Congress and he gives a State of the Union. And in that State of the Union, there is a sentence. And the sentence is the, the strength of the economy is strong. The American economy is strong. I would like each of you to fill in the blank here. If you had to stand before an audience, Congress, you name it, and say the strength of the American economy, the strength of the world economy is blank. What word or what phrase would you use to fill in the blank? Neil, why don't you go first? It's astonishing, considering all the things we're doing that ought to be impeding its growth. Tyler? I mean, historically, the source of strength in the US and indeed global economy is innovation. And there's no such, certainly no such thing as, as a free lunch, uh, but it's a, it, relatively speaking, it's a, it's a pretty darn cheap lunch that when you get transformational breakthrough innovation that dramatically lowers costs, dramatically increases social savings, uh, and to Neil's point, I, I think we are we are doing a, an awful lot to impede innovation. And I guess you know if if, if you if you if you deal in relatives, at least we're not doing as badly as Europe. Okay, John Cochran, fill in the blank. The state of the economy is what perilous. Um, there is a great strength, as Neil pointed out. It's amazing how much damage we can do to the thing, and it keeps going. Uh, but the American economy has been based on uh, rights, freedoms. Look, for example, at fracking. Uh, we lead the world in carbon reduction. Why? Because of the federal program? No, because some people went out and over all the objections, the politicians invented a new way to make natural gas come out cheaper. Rights, uh, freedoms, the ability to innovate, uh, to compete, co competition, to, to throw out the established incumbents, much harder to do in other parts of the countries. And from the government, the ability to eventually see problems and reform them after we've tried everything else uh, slowly but surely. Those, those have been the hallmarks of America's uh, strengths. And, and I think all of those are rusty uh, and in danger. Okay, our time is up. Our guest has to dash. Tyler, thanks for joining us. I hope that Neil did not feel outnumbered. I think Tyler did a great job of uh, threading the needle, both as an economist and a historian. So that's it for this episode of Goodfellows. But fear not, we'll be back soon with a new conversation. On behalf of my Hoover colleagues, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, the good fellow named Goodspeed, we wish you and yours the very best. Thanks for watching.
If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.